make him who he was. He didn't fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I'm the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who'd been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you don't know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you, Alan. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. My name's Richard. I'm part of the staff team here at the church, and it's great to be able to speak to you um, this morning. About a year ago, um, I was in, uh, we used to live in Cambridge, and I was um, on my way to an ethics lecture. And um, en route, I was presented with an ethical dilemma. Um, I had the choice of either continuing to my lecture or joining a crowd that was gathering in order to welcome to Cambridge two of the most famous people in the world at that time. So I was with a friend, and uh, we talked about it for 10, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 seconds, something like that. And then we thought, probably the best thing to do, this is once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, the best thing for us to do in this moment is to join the crowd and await these very special guests. So we took our, our place in the crowd, and uh, as we were standing there, we began to notice that various things had happened. So all of the bins had been removed in Cambridge City Centre. There were no bins anywhere. And the post boxes had been sort of locked in metal cages. It was all very exciting. And then uh, policemen started walking up and down the, the kind of the, the streets that we were uh, in, and they were kind of looking at you. And you know, when a policeman looks at you, you feel just instantly guilty, like that you may at any moment do something completely out of character, but you just have that feeling oh my goodness, I've done something awful. And you haven't, but they just look at you in that kind of way. And then after, no offence, Darren. Um, and then after, I just saw Karen look at Darren. I thought I, I thought I should make a quick apology. And then, after that happened, then people used to walk, they, people walked around like this, and they had some very nice suits on, and all this kind of thing. I don't know what they were doing, they had a finger in their ear, they looked like they were in spooks or something like this. They were walking up and down and looking at people and checking everything out and all this kind of stuff. It was very exciting. The tension was mounting. And then after a little while, there was just this murmur of excitement to our left, sort of away in the distance. And the murmur of excitement became a bit more of a frenzy, and then that frenzy just came closer and closer and closer. And then, there in front of us were William and Kate, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, making their first official visit to the city. Everybody's favorite couple, 
were there in front of us, and it was just brilliant. Everyone was cheering, and it was amazing. Now, I don't know whether you guys subscribe to Majesty magazine or anything like that, but I do know there's some very keen cyclists in the room. And so a few years before that, I was in, uh, we used to live in Tunbridge Wells before that, the Tour de France came through Tunbridge Wells. Some of you will know that and probably be quite excited about it. So after church, we rushed down to the street corner where the, site, where the race was passing. And there was this big crowd of people gathering. And uh, as we were standing there, like, you know, you'd be waiting and then a, a police car would whiz past and then uh, some sponsor cars would sort of would come past and then like a support truck would come past. And then, and then after a little while, somebody would go past and they'd have a, a loud speak on their car and they'd say, the peloton is 12 minutes away, 12 minutes away. Oh, very exciting, the peloton. No idea what a peloton is, but it's exciting that it's so close. And then uh, a little bit, and then be another police car whizzing past, and then you know another sponsor car and a support truck, and then another person saying the lead rider is five minutes away, five minutes away, and the excitement started to build, and and all that parents in the crowd started to point their children's head towards the correct direction, because you know it's like, you know, the, the, the something amazing couldn't be happening right in front of a child, but they can't see it. They kind of all, so everyone was sort of like just trying to get their child ready for this great moment, and then just out of nowhere. <laughs> This, this cyclist came past, and everyone was like, what, what was that? Look, you're trying to find out what that was. And then, as everyone was looking this way, about 70 other cyclists went like this, and that was it. <laughs> that was the Tour de France in Tunbridge Wells. Oh, I just turned around and went home. It was quite boring. But, um, but there we go. But in this reading, um, we meet the great herald uh, in the Bible, the great herald of the Bible, John the Baptist, and John the Baptist comes to announce the arrival, not of everybody's favorite couple, William and Kate, or not of the Tour de France or Bradley Wiggins or whoever it might be, but John comes to announce the arrival of Jesus Christ. He comes to announce the arrival of the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And John does that not by removing street furniture, although I kind of imagine that John would quite enjoy doing that because he's quite a maverick sort of character. But John does it by preaching and by baptizing. He does it by calling people to repentance, calling people to realign their lives, realign their thoughts with what God had said to them. He calls them to holiness and to repent of their sins. And then he baptizes them in the Jordan as a sign of the fact that their sin can be forgiven and washed away. You see, John lived in a time of great expectation and great speculation. The last few hundred years had been pretty rough for the Jewish people. They'd been released from exile. King Cyrus of Persia had released them from exile. They'd returned to their land. They'd started to rebuild. They'd rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. They'd rebuilt the temple. They'd begun to rebuild their cities and put their lives back together. And the reality was that although that was in some ways great, life wasn't quite what it used to be. Life wasn't quite what it used to be. And the prophets had gone silent. It was as if God wasn't speaking to them anymore. And to make matters worse, along came the Greek empire. The Greeks conquered them and took them over. And then once the Greeks passed away, here come the Romans. And at the time of John and at the time of Jesus, Israel, the Jews, are in the grip of the most powerful empire that the world had ever seen. And all hope of being their own people, all hope of having their own land, 
just seemed so distant as Rome had them in its grip. And in this very bleak scene, expectation and speculation begin to bubble up. Could this be the time? Could this be the time into which the chosen one might step? Could this be the time into which the Messiah might come? And along with wondering whether this might be the time, they begin to think, what's he going to be like? What's the Messiah going to be like? Is he going to be a political figure? Is he going to be a military figure? Is he going to be somebody who who takes on the might of Rome and, and sets us free from this captivity? Is he going to be a spiritual figure? What's he going to be like? And into this kind of melting pot of expectation and speculation steps John the Baptist and he's preaching and he's baptizing and he's gathering a crowd in the desert. And so his ministry comes to the attention of the religious leaders back in Jerusalem and they send a delegation. They want to know what's going on. And so they come to John and really they ask him two questions. Who are you and what are you doing? Who are you and what are you doing? Now John understands that what they're really wondering initially is, are you someone claiming to be the Messiah? Are you somebody who's claiming to be the Messiah? So John straight away says to them, I am not the Christ. So they say, well, who are you? Are you Elijah? So the Jews were expecting Elijah to return. Elijah was, he didn't die, did he? He was taken up to, uh, to heaven in a whirlwind. And, and the prophet Malachi says that Elijah would return before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So they were expecting Elijah to come. John says, no, not Elijah. They said, well, are you the prophet? The prophet was somebody spoken about in Deuteronomy. Again, a figure that they were expecting to return before, uh, before the Messiah came. John says, no. I'm not the prophet. So who are you? Who are you, they say. I love John's answer. John's answer is full of confidence and it's full of humility. It's an amazing answer. When they ask him who he is, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40. And he says this. He says, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way of the Lord. John simply says, I'm just a voice. I'm just the voice of somebody crying out, Be ready. Be ready. Because God is about to visit his people in a unique way and wonderful way be ready so the authorities continue pressing him they say okay so you're not the Christ you're not Elijah you're not the prophet okay so what are you doing why are you baptizing people 
Again, John's answer is full of confidence and full of humility. He says, I baptize with water. My baptism is an outward sign of the fact that sin can be forgiven. It's an outward sign of, of putting oneself right in readiness for the one who's to come. But he straight away points to the one who's to come. He says, the one who's coming after me is so awesome, is so wonderful, is so great that I'm not even worthy of untying his sandal. You think my ministry looks impressive here in the desert. The one who's coming after me, his ministry, it will be so immense. I'm not even worthy to undo his shoe. The one task a slave did not have to perform was to undo the shoes of his master. They were spared the indignity. Yet John says, the one who's coming after me, I'm not even worthy of undoing his sandal. I want to suggest this morning that the two questions that this delegation put to John, who are you and what are you doing, are actually two of the most fundamental questions that humans ask in their short lives. Who am I and what am I doing here? I want to ask you this morning, do you have a sense of who you are? Do you have a sense of what the Bible says about you and about your identity? Do you have a sense this morning that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you are an adopted child of the God who created the heavens and the earth? You. You are an adopted son, an adopted daughter of the person, the God, who created everything that is seen and unseen. Do you have a sense this morning that God the Father chose you before the beginning of time? He chose you before the beginning of time to be his child. Do you have a sense this morning that God makes the resources of heaven available to you? Do you have a sense this morning that you are a co-heir alongside Jesus Christ? Do you have a sense this morning that you are deeply, deeply, deeply loved by God the Father? That your name is engraved upon the palm of God's hand? There isn't a moment that passes where your name is not before the eyes of God. That's who you are. That's what the Bible says about you. But do you also have a sense this morning about the calling that's on your life, the purpose, the reason why you're here. Now for some of us, we have a very specific sense of calling, a very specific sense of purpose. Some of us, we just know that God has called us to be an optician in China or to be a banker in Slough or to be a teacher in Northfields or something of that nature. We have a very specific sense of what God has called us to. And for the rest of us, we may just think, I don't know, I'm just, just doing life. <laughs> I'm just doing a job and just doing what I can do. 
whichever camp you're in, there is a calling upon your life. There's a reason why you're here. If you woke up this morning with breath in your body, it's because God has a call upon your life. And the call upon your life is, is similar to the call that was upon John's life. To point people towards Jesus. The call upon our lives is to point others towards Jesus Christ. To say, be ready. Be ready. Because the King is coming. This week I, um, I saw two lovely examples um, of people just in very simple ways living out that sense of calling. I, I was thinking about this talk a little bit on Tuesday morning and so both examples are from Tuesday. I'm sure I saw countless other examples. But on Tuesday evening, um, I, was, I, was, I was at home and um, I saw, this, this is the sort of thing that concerns me, Mark will tell you, uh, I saw Julie leaving the home with what looked like a perfectly good crumble. And I was, I was alarmed, I'll be honest, I was absolutely alarmed. I, so I, as I thought it's only right that I, I say, Julie... Where are you going with that perfectly good-looking crumble? I wanted to know. I like to eat, Mark will tell you. Um, so I said, Julie, where are you going with the crumble? And Julie said, I'm just taking it round to a neighbour. She just made, she had to make a batch for something, and so she had a little bit left over. So I'm just taking it round to, to one of our, our neighbours. On Friday, that neighbour, um, he came to our house. Julie was out, I was in, and um, he knocked on the door. He was just so thankful that she'd done that. He was so thankful and surprised that she had just turned up with this little bit of apple crumble. And I just thought in, that, in a very, very simple way, Julie was just operating out of that sense of calling, sharing with a neighbor something of the generosity and the kindness, not of us, but of God. And he was touched by that. And then later that night, I had the privilege of being part of the winter night shelter, just helping out. And Antonio and Nell have done an amazing job of just coordinating that for St. Paul's. And it was, it was an honor to work with other churches and to be part of that, of that, um, uh, that initiative. On, on Tuesday night, I met a lady there called, called Alison. Is that her name, Alison? And she, she administers the night shelter, just part-time. She's... I mean this with all due respect, but she's just a very ordinary person, just like me or just like you. When I met Alison, I just had a real sense of the light of Christ shining out of her. There's something about the light of Christ about her. And she just does a very simple task. She just does what she can. And she just administers that ministry so that the most vulnerable, the poorest people in our community might have somewhere to sleep during these cold winter months. And I thought about Alison, I thought, you know, the Catholics, they won't, they won't make her a saint of her. And the evangelicals, we, we won't put her on a massive stage and ask her to preach. But I thought, there is someone out of whom the light of Christ shines. There is someone who is doing what she can, with the little that she has, to point people towards the one who is to come. To point people, the poorest, the most vulnerable people, towards Jesus. 
And I was humbled by those two examples. So why was John so keen to point people to Jesus? Why was he so keen to take the focus off of him and to put it onto the Christ? Two things, really brief, and then I'll finish. Verse 29 says this, The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look. I think that verse in some way seems to sum up the whole of what John was about. Look. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, John's baptism was just a sign. It was just a sign that sins could be forgiven. But it was the life of Jesus Christ. It was his life, his death, his resurrection that made the forgiveness of sin possible. It was his sacrifice. It was him becoming the sacrificial lamb of God that made the forgiveness of sin a possibility and a reality for those who might believe. And so John points, behold, the Lamb of God. And a little bit later, he says this. He, meaning Jesus, he will baptize you, not just with muddy water from the Jordan as a sign, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. His ministry is so much more superior to mine that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit so that you can know God in a new way. You can become and know yourself as that adopted son or daughter of God and so that you might have the resources and the power to live out the calling which God has placed on your life. Behold, look. Look at the one who is to come. Shall we stand together? Mark, you join.